Welcome to the Viewpoints listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grosso. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to the program Dr. Natasha Chicha, who's the Director of Change Consultancy, Capacity.org. Um, Natasha was formerly the Legal Advisor of the Australian Parliament on National Security, Immigration and Human Rights. I met uh, Dr. Chicha through uh, the Griffith Review some 18 months ago, um, where she was a co-editor with Ashley Hay, and we had some great chats there, and uh, it's wonderful to be able to resume uh, our, our communication. Uh, we've got an interesting topic to talk about, but firstly, welcome to Natasha. Oh, it's deli- I'm delighted to be back, Henry. You might like to tell us a little bit about that article first. Well, really, it just seemed to me that um, look, I've been very interested in Australia's border anxieties for a long time since, as you flagged, I worked as a legal advisor to the federal parliament and I was working on border control, immigration, refugees, multiculturalism. And that's 20 years ago now that I was doing a lot of that work. And that was through Tampa and 9-11. So I think in that time, if anything, Australia's attitude towards what we will call border control has become even less humane and more paranoid that than it was then and I think some really problematic attitudes have become entrenched in the mainstream and then I also think that what happened during COVID when our international borders were closed and so many, so many, I mean tens of thousands of Australian citizens were stranded outside the country and weren't able to get back in. I mean I look at it now, it's incredible and also people like me who had become very used to moving backwards and forwards and also who have family outside Australia, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't go, be there, see them, touch them and be together for very important um, family um, celebrations or moments or even just for work. So I think the combination of those two things um, was a little bit like a, a little bit like a bomb waiting to go off and then in walks Novak. Or flies, or flies, <laughs> flies, <In> flies no <laughs> and um, and you know the rest is history, as they say. Although unfolding history, because I don't think that chapter's over. No, no, it was a very good, a very good piece. I think um, it's only this week we've just heard, uh, as we're speaking, and mm. before we go to air, that. Uh, uh, and I want to bet with a friend only because I think I understand uh, sport and competition and the 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 pressure of of, of, of uh, elite. Uh, desire to succeed at that level. Novak has relented and he's decided to get himself vaccinated and we'll have the pleasure of watching him take up arms against his fellow elite tennis players following <coughs> following um, being banned from uh, the Australian Open. So he's probably learned a lesson there on a personal level, hasn't he? He probably has. I haven't, I mean, I haven't seen that finally confirmed, um, but let's hope I mean, I personally would love to see him play again. And I just want to add, I'm probably the most over-vaccinated person I know. I nearly, was nearly beating the doors down to get my booster shot in Tasmania, which was not an easy thing. So I just think it's been a really, really unfortunate um, bungling of public discourse. I think there would have been better ways for us to have the conversation. I understand why so many people became angry at him because they've been unable to move themselves. Um, But I do think that the public conversation was really abusive and at times hysterical and not 
necessarily helpful to the end that we all want, which is for all of us to work better together to approach the challenges of this pandemic in a calm, mutually respectful and effective way. So it was a really difficult time. And I, Henry, I really hesitated about whether I was going to write the piece because I knew that when I did, I would receive some pretty nasty blowback, and I did. But that's what happens when you stick your head above the parapet and say something that's not necessarily where the mob is going at the moment. Yes, I found that in my profession as a school principal that yes. Um, yes. working for public the public uh, sector, um, being, in my opinion, always coming from a staunch advocate of public yes. education... Uh, that hasn't always made me popular with uh, <coughs> with people who who have some say over my destiny. But uh, I agree with you. Um, that's the way yeah. it is. Now, um, and and one of the things that really got to me, and you touched on it, uh, being a migrant child uh, from yeah. Europe uh, in the fifties, um, yeah. and I love being an Australian. I'm proud to be an Australian, but. Um, we experienced racism and it doesn't take much these days even. You can see the racism as soon as you touch certain topics, press a few buttons. Some of the response to Novak has been certainly racist-based, hasn't it? Certainly it has and it's been, you know, I've found it personally directed at me as a consequence of writing this piece, um, as I intimated. And I find that quite ironic because I was born in Australia. I have had a Serbo-Croatian name, which is Chicha, which comes from my father. Um, but but my mother was, I don't know, I'm fifth or sixth generation Tasmanian. I sort of lose track of how many there are. So I'm about as Australian as a contemporary Australian gets. So I do find... The, uh, the thinness of that veneer of civilization around how we talk across not just racial but cultural divides to be really worrying because we are a very successful multicultural country, but we, I still think that we've got a long way to go in learning how to have mutually respectful dialogue. And that's not just about coming from different national backgrounds. It's also about the style of engagement and the way that people use language, whether they speak directly, whether they speak, um, you know, in a more passive or polite way. And so if I've got any positive takeout from this experience is that I've learnt a lot about how we need to do a lot more work on that. Yeah. And that's positive. That's positive, not negative, because there's, <laughs> yeah, always, I know what there's always more work to do. And I did think, Henry, I did think that the generation, that the contribution that the generation that your parents were part of and also that my father has been part of, I thought, I thought that those battles were over. I thought that we'd finally gotten somewhere where we would be a little bit sweeter and gentler with each other. And I don't really feel that anymore. So I'm at the moment I'm just sort of sitting back, pondering my next chess move and watching watching the conversation because that's what my work in politics taught me to do. Sometimes it's better to watch than open your mouth. Absolutely, yes. That's a lesson I continually relearn as I, <laughs> as, I, as, I, as I age. Um, uh, uh, it, it does... It does 
bemuse me and puzzle me to some extent this problem that uh, of, of 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 racism um, and, yes. it's, and it's global given the multicultural nature and the success we've had with it because yeah. uh, and I sit there and I think have we really got past that concept of tribalism to any great extent when you see this happening and I I sometimes I sometimes wonder I wonder whether whether that's successful in that way uh, as we'd like to be I think, yeah, I guess humans are tribal. I think it, well, you're sweet. You're in Melbourne, so Melburnians understand tribalism because you've all got your football teams, right? <laughs> so I think that um, I do think that when human beings are placed under extreme pressure, uh, they revert to the most. I don't know the most what, to the space they find the easiest or the most comforting or the most defensive if you like so I've seen a lot of that I've seen a lot of that in my work since I started COVID because part of what I do is executive coaching for people who and they've been under very very serious stress since this pandemic erupted and so I've watched them trying to deal with a lot of quite bad behaviors coming from other people and trying to figure out a a path forward through that so I don't think it's just about race I think it's what happens to the human animal when we are frightened and people have been very frightened and I think moving into 2022 people are still very frightened in Australia because this bloody virus is still with us, isn't it? Mm, that is completely understandable. Would you take a short break? Natasha, can you hold yep, the line? I can hold, yep. Thank you. Welcome back to Viewpoints, listeners. I'm your host, Henry Grussick, in the middle of a conversation with Dr. Natasha Chika, who uh, is the uh, Director of Change Consultancy Capacity.org, and we'll be getting to talk about that before we finish the program. She was formerly a legal advisor of the Australian Parliament on National Security, Immigration and Human Rights. Welcome back, uh, Natasha. Hello again. Now, in that piece that we've been talking about before the break, you said uh, since the COVID pandemic landed, Australia has positioned itself most extremely as a global outlier on border control. Powerful words. You might like to explain. Well, um, I mean, the simple fact that our international border was closed for so long during COVID answers that question. I I mean, other people didn't do it. So um, I found that really problematic that we could be completely closed. And we are an island a long way from everywhere. So what are people supposed to do? Swim out. So I I am nervous that there was such strong support for that measure when very clearly there were a number of steps that could have been taken to make that border a semi-permeable membrane safely. So, for example, being faster off the mark around establishing quarantine facilities was the obvious one, which, you know, seems like a million years ago now. But I couldn't believe that we were so flat-footed around that. And I will say, you know, I, I never I never disclose who I vote for, Henry, because it's not appropriate. But I mm. will say that the behaviour of this government around addressing a whole range of measures around COVID that would have not just kept us safe but made us feel safer but also adequately free has been really disappointing and a little frightening. Mm. Mm. 
is one that rings true for me again, you know, um, who I vote for is my business. But yes. I, I can't help but uh, remember that comment. And I can see it's some of my explanations of why things could be better in schools. It's, yes. not, a, it's not a race. <laughs> I, for some I reason, <laughs> find that one a very difficult one to come to terms with. Yes, uh, and I won't, I can't come to terms with it because it's always been a race, and we are we are actually one of the things about Australia that's always been distinctive is we have prided ourselves on our sportsmanship. So one of the reasons we love tennis and cricket and the footy is because it's been part of our way of identifying nationally in a proud kind of way. And, you know, if Cathy Freeman could run as fast as she could, why couldn't our Prime Minister at least begin to emulate her? And I believe that that um, what I will call sluggishness or negligence or whatever it was is almost criminally negligent and unforgivable. Mm. Now, now moving through that and... uh... You do have a great love of tennis. Um, before we, I do. Before, do, I you, do. Have you played? Do you play? I have a long time ago. I actually learnt tennis when I lived in London when I was doing my master's degree. Um, I used. I had two. I had two um, great opponents. One was a francophone from Quebec who worked in international mm. relations, and she was highly emotional, and we were equally matched. So we would go. You know, our, our matches would go forever. And the other was a U.S. Marine who would play with me in <laughs> satin, satin stars and stripes boxer shorts. And he had a very he had a lot of testosterone happening in his serve. So I always used to beat him <laughs> because he did so many double faults. <laughs> oh, goodness. Yes, I, I like tennis too. I, uh, I learned a lesson that became apparent much later in my life. When I was in grade six, now I was very good at ball sports and I did play to a pretty high level in whatever I chose but in the early days I didn't play tennis and I was in grade six and we went down to the local courts at Nilman near Warrigal in Gippsland, Victoria and we all got to play and you played as long as you won the game. Now I, we tossed the coin and I had to serve so (laughs) I'd never been taught anything, the teacher taught me nothing, all I got was to serve four double faults and that was the end of my tennis until my 40s when I gave up other sports, football and uh, cricket and so on, and I took up tennis and learned how to play it to a, a respectable level. But it taught me the lesson that you've got to show people how to do things if you're going to expect them to succeed. And it's amazing, as in, in the teaching profession, the impact... Yes. One little thing, and the teacher probably didn't mean it, but didn't show me what to do. And for the next 30 years, I steered away from something that, you know, you might have even seen me at Wimbledon. <laughs> yes. And, uh, they would, and they probably would have let you in. They Harry. probably would have. <laughs> because, now, because you, now, I'm, sure you've, I'm sure you're vaccinated. Uh, exactly. Now, your love yeah. of tennis is only eclipsed by your <laughs> fandom for the rule of law. Why did you introduce that into this uh, piece? Because for me, one of the, for me, the, um, I suppose the most reassuring aspect of the Djokovic affair was the ruling of the federal court at first instance, um, in by of by Judge Anthony Kelly, in which he examined the. overturned the overturning of the visa. Sorry, that's a double negative. But I was waiting to see how that piece of law in action would play out because I studied law and I didn't study law 
as an abs as an intellectual or abstracted exercise. I studied law because I believe in justice. And so I was actually really comforted by the way the judge handled that case and the way that he very methodically and fairly moved through the arguments made um, by counsel on both sides. So I do believe in the rule of law. I think a lot of what's happening at the moment is people feel they can say anything about anyone and that they that can result in people losing their jobs, their positions and their reputations. And I believe the rule of law holds us in some kind of basically equal check. So, as I say, that's why I studied law. Absolutely. And makes good sense. Now, time's got away from us, but capacity.org, what do you do Yes, capacity.org? Well, I do a few things. One is I do one-on-one. I don't like to call it coaching. It's more advisory. I work for stressed executives who are trying to fix things, build things and run things and need somebody they can trust to um, provide advisory support to them. And then I often work with their management teams to get the team moving towards uh, dialogue-based understanding of where the team needs to go and I really enjoy being in rooms working with people who may disagree or have very different personalities backgrounds and perspectives so that by the end of the day I can get them to agree on at least one thing which helps people move in a positive direction that's mainly what I do I also as you know write and do public events and commentary but the the guts of it is working with those people who are at the pointy end of some very difficult change Mm, and it would be quite rewarding I would say when you have some success it really is because nobody knows who I do it for and so then when I see one of those men or women go out and land what I know they're trying to land and also feel, I guess, more reassured about their capacity to deliver change in the world, I I do feel very satisfied because it's an important service to be able to deliver to people, to be behind the scenes supporting people at those pointy and sticky ends. Mm, couldn't be much more important. Natasha, it's always it's been a great pleasure having you on the program. And, and um, again, as I said, one of my favourite words is nourishing. And uh, <laughs> I, f- I found that a very nourishing uh, piece, as Thank I have you. found this discussion. It would be great to have you on the program again uh, well, if well, and when you've got the time. Any time, and one of my favourite words, uh, Henry, is hospitality. So thank you for extending that to me again. My pleasure, and uh, all the best with you and your family. That was Dr Natasha Chika, who's the founding director of Capacity.org. We'll take a short break. Listeners, don't go away. Mm-hmm. 